Guys, does anybody is everybody sufficiently caffeinated or decaffeinated and have water? I think we're good. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Uh, I'm fine. Right. Pause for dramatic effect. Drum roll, please. That's a shock. We need a soundboard. Okay. <laughs> right. This episode is brought to you by Officer, a South African recruitment startup for developers. Officer inverts the normal recruitment process. Instead of applying for jobs, 350 tech companies in Cape Town, Johannesburg, and Pretoria send developers interview requests with upfront salary info. For developers, it's completely free to sign up and use. In fact, you get 5,000 Rand if you take a job through them. Visit offerzen.com to sign up. That's O F F E R Z E N.com. Hi everyone, and welcome to episode 57 of the ZA Dev Chat podcast. And tonight we're talking a bit about PyCon and Python community at large in the country. I'm joined by Kevin. Hello, hello. And Chantal. Hello. And our guests tonight are Simon Cross. Good evening. Neil Miller. Hello. And David Sharp. Hey. So, guys, as a just to give people a chance to get familiar with you, uh, why don't we take like a, a few moments just so you guys can introduce yourself and 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 tell them about some of the interesting Python-related stuff you do and what your life looked like before then. So, Simon, if we can start with you. Sure, um, I've been working on with Python for um, a bit more than ten years. I started I learned Python by informatics. Um, I moved from there to a web startup writing Python, uh, Python web framework for industry, and then on to the Square Kilometer Array, um, where we wrote the simulated telescope in Python and a lot of the high-level control software. Uh, from there, I moved on to kind of at-throughput text messaging uh, at an NGO that provides text-based services to people over mobile phones, and now I'm just Start to start a data science team. Oh, and I kind of accidentally started Python today four years ago um, with help from quite a few people. And that's it for me. Thanks, David. Uh, hey, so I'm an electrical engineer who's spent a lot of time doing embedded C and C. Um, I started out working for a small consulting firm, moved on to um, a mobile point of sale terminal, all embedded GSM. Then ended up doing uh, work, working on vehicle tracking, uh, and all along the way, I had Python as a support language um, that did all the the heavy lifting, all, all the interesting things, things like things like that. Uh, and then this year, I've gone over to the dark side completely, and I'm purely working in Python. And it's it's great. It always makes me angry to change between the languages because. Everything in Python is just so easy, uh, and that's me. Thanks, and, and Neil. I'm Neil Muller. I work on imaging pro image processing problems for the Medical Radiation Group at Itemba Labs, and I've never actually programmed Python professionally. I use it as scripting language. I use the SciPy and NumPy toolkits for various test things, and I do an awful lot of side projects in Python. 
Our side projects are important, as many of our guests before have said. Yeah, side projects have definitely, I've, I've learned a lot of what I know by doing projects on the side. Yeah, I know. Me too. It's always a joy. So thanks for joining us. I guess the main goal uh, of tonight is to kind of talk about PyCon uh, and anchor everything around PyCon. Uh, but I mean, we can definitely going to venture around and see what the rest of the Python ecosystem looks like. I'm very curious. And thanks a lot for making the time. So who wants to give us a brief brief history of PyCon and, and what led up to it and, and tell us a bit about the international conference as well that it's related to? Sure, I'll build this. In early 2012, which is when the first PyCon South Africa took place, um, I decided that I would um, go to PyCon US. I just become friends with one of the core PyPy developers. Uh, PyPy is a just-in-time compiler for Python. Um, I just kind of made friends with one of the core developers, and he encouraged me to go to PyCon US in San Francisco. Um, and yes, wow, that was that, that was an incredible roller coaster ride. It's, I went from having not been to any software conferences really to a conference with 2,500 attendees, um, six parallel tracks in kind of the heart of Silicon Valley. It, it was a, a crazy first. And while I was there, my boss at the time, Simon Dahan, and the owner of the company I was working for, Gustav Freckel, Simon messaged Gustav and said, hey, we should run PyCon South Africa. So PyCon, there's always been many different PyCons around the world. And so Simon got hold of me and said, hey, you've been to Python US, do you want to have a go at running Python today? And Freykel generously allowed me to spend a lot of my time and a fair chunk of their money running around trying to kind of replicate some of the things that I'd seen um, of the Python US conference structure in conference in South Africa. And that's kind of where everything came from. I had a lot of help the first year actually from non-coders, from people who had run big events before, people who could tell me things like, you need a budget and a venue and you need to give people food and this is how many people who have bought tickets are not going to, all of the kind, these kind of things. And yeah, and that was kind of how the, the first year's Python's a day got off the ground. The next conference um, was also in Cape Town. And then we kind of decided that if we were going to call this Python South Africa, it would need to go to Johannesburg too. Otherwise, it would only be Python Cape Town. And so in 2014 and 2015, it took place in Johannesburg. And this year, it's to Cape Town. I think one of the mis mistakes I made, especially in 2013 and 2014, was that moving to Johannesburg I ended up carrying a bit too much of the organizational burden. I had lots of people helping me, but I was too much of the kind of replaceable cog. And I'm glad to say that this year things are much better, practically not involved in organizing at all to tell people things about how previous years ran. That's selling yourself a bit. And before PyCon came to be, um, were there other strong Python communities that you guys could just kind of build on top of, uh, easily used to um, attract some of the initial speakers and attendees? So I think as far as Python today, very much grew out of the Cape Town Python user group, um, which was already fairly ac active at the time. Um, I think I'm going to let Neil say some things about the early days of the Cape Town Python user group, since um, he was the sort of central figure there, I guess. CTPug grew out of um, essentially the Cape Linux users, a bunch of people involved with that said, ooh, you know, we're all interested in Python, so let's put something together. And in sort of 2006, Neil Blakely Mil Milner, 
who's now gone and left for Facebook, organized a meeting at Ames, the, Af the African Institute for Mathematical Sciences. And a lot of people showed up. And it was a very interesting meeting and went on for quite some time. And afterwards, everyone said, oh, we must do this again. And we didn't for a while. Then I got hold of a couple of people, organized the second one, and promised to organize a third one, which was a mistake. And since then, I've organized a lot more. So CTPUG has been going fairly strongly since um, 2007. We've benefited from having several very enthusiastic people. And, and we also, because of that, made, even before the introduction of PyCon ZA, we made contact with a few international people because we worked on various sprints and got to know some people in the NumPy, NumPy community and so on, which meant we had some contacts to work with with PyCon, Z, PyCon ZA started. Although, admittedly, a lot of the... A lot of what we had was first and his connections with the PyPy crowd, who gave us access to a lot of people to ask for the first PyCon ZA. Yeah, the first PyCon South Africa had an incredible speakers lineup, which I don't think we're going to get to duplicate for a very long time. Pretty much, we had, I think, five or six visiting international speakers, and pretty much any of them could have kind of keynoted at any PyCon in the world. And what was really incredible was that person who was voted as having given the best talk in the kind of exit survey was a Capetonian, uh, Edward van Cape, who had been a longtime member of the Cape Town Python user group and, in fact, had opened a bar um, whose software was all written in Python. For in the early days of the Cape Town Python user group, a lot of the events took place as well. After the event at Ames and a few later events where we moved around, we entered a long period where events mostly took place at the rooms that Edward rented at the Bandwidth Barn in Cape Town, when it was still at its old location in the, uh, in the CBD. And how often was the CTPUG uh, meeting at this point? Well, it's been running pretty much every six weeks um, since 2007, with you know the occasional longer break because of um, the December holiday and, and such. Um, and, and have you been involved in running it? You said you've been involved in running it for quite some time. Have you been running it now since 2007? Yes. It suddenly sounds like an awful long yeah, time. Getting close to a decade here. Uh, <laughs> I, I admire the commitment. I mean, speaking from uh, being involved in the Ruby community in Joburg, where we've had several uh, stalwarts of the community heading it up at different times. What's the secret in keeping, busy, you know, keeping at it for so long? Being willing to annoy people and ask them to speak. <laughs> well, I, I think one of the things that's kept um, the kind of core of the CDPUG community together um, has been all of the sort of side activities that have the communities engaged in. Yeah. So especially if there was a long period when the community was quite small, kind of sort of really the most people we were seeing at a meetup with the team. Thankfully, sort of in the last kind of five years, that's grown quite a lot. And now we occasionally fill Alexander Bar and it's theater, which is our kind of default thing at the moment. And that's sort of 50 seats. Um, but there are things like working on, like having Python bug days, where we work on um, kind of bugs in core Python with varying degrees of success. Um, or High Week, which is writing a game in Python in a week, which we get together to do probably on average about kind of once a year. The event happens twice a year. Um, it's quite a big chunk of taking out a whole week of evenings. It's quite a big chunk of time. But all those, yeah, all those, I think all those activities have made things kind of quite fun for the core group. And yeah, and then now I think with, with PyCon's PyCon today has really helped to kind of grow the community outside of the core group. I think everyone at 
CDPAC was actually surprised by how easily we cleared 200 attendees in the first year. We had no real idea of who would attend, um, and it, but yeah, it kind of worked, worked out really well. I think one of the difficult things with the Python community is that Python is being used for a lot of different things. And so there's not always kind of a massive overlap. So if you're using Python for kind of um, statistics and you're using mostly kind of NumPy and things like scikit-learn, you're not necessarily going to overlap very much in interest with someone who's doing web development with Python. And I think that's, that's perfectly fine. So, for example, the kind of various sort of maker meetups that are around Many people there are using Python, but for them, they wouldn't necessarily attend a CQPAC meeting because they're not actually specifically interested in Python. They're interested in making cool robots. No, because Python as a general purpose language actually has a lot of applications. I mean, it's like you said, it's just, there's a lot of number crunching work, um, especially, I guess, that like feeds into all the machine learning and AI stuff that's coming out of Google and some other places. There's all the embedded stuff with Raspberry Pi, uh, there's game programming. There's, I, I don't know, is it good use for desktop apps? Because um, I know there's windowing toolkits for it. Uh, you can write desktop apps for it, and there are several things. Usually the issue there is coming up with a good, if you want to make something that's cross-platform, that severely limits your choice of uh, toolkit. But if you're only targeting either Windows or Linux or something else, then you can go wild and do some very, very cool things. I think of a good example. Um, so my company has developed an IDE in Python using WX Python. Awesome. Do you want to tell us about the IDE? Um, so basically, the company does industrial so operations management software. So it's it's software for mining and petrochemicals and things like that. So the running of their processes and things um, like shift handovers and things like that. And what we developed was a way to basically we have a logbook um, application and it's a way to, uh, the IDE is used as like a spreadsheet form designer to design forms that will be implemented in our software on the browser side. I don't know I, if that made sense. <laughs> uh, it, it makes sense. Um, I have developed quite wide array of um, embedded systems interface tools for configuring and testing like hardware uh, and uh, the the interface they're really the interfaces are really easy to code um and it's very easy to write in the first place so very accessible neil and i have been maintaining a collectible card game management software which is written using igtk possibly for longer than speaking has been going or at least it's very close yeah so that's a little bit tricky because neither of us use windows which means that we're always kind of deploying things to uh, virtual machines which usually end up being slightly different to real Windows machines in unexpected ways. There's there's a traitor in them that's who does the testing for them every now and again. Uh, when you're building with uh, with Python for Windows, do you end up with an executable file somehow, or does how does that depends work? On, depends on what you do. For what we do is we use Py2exe, which produces a nice standalone executable that's quite large, and that is the simplest option if you're trying to do an application. People who are targeting um, actual Python developers will will distribute a wheel or something like that, which okay. <clears throat> requires that the person already has Python installed. So that's always that's always a trade-off. Do you assume the person has Python installed, or do you 
bundled everything together into a standalone executable. For listeners, Wheel is the new Python binary distribution format, well, compiled distribution format. Maybe to butcher it, but it's akin to like a Java file for Java devs. Uh, yes, sorry, I'm having to dredge up my memories of Java, which are kind of eight years but old. buried away deep. <laughs> I, I, I got rid of all of mine. Um, similar to Java files. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just like it's a standalone, like, compiled resource, but without the runtime. Yes. Okay, yeah, I guess for Mac and Linux, it makes things a lot easier, given that they both ship with Python, you know, out the box. Yes, yeah. Until also, you hit version conflicts between Python 2 and Python 3, but that may be out of the scope of this conversation. It's actually the last year or so, actually very possible to maintain a code base that supports both Python 2.7 and, say, Python 3.7 and 3.5. I'm doing it at the moment for a project at work, and really it's hardly making a difference to the way I code my Python at all. Um, it's kind of a few places here and there where apps do things a little bit differently, but most kind of just the same. Until you start using one of the cool features of Python 3. Of okay, I'm, I, I, yes, I did have to make some Python 3 only things in order to use the uh, amazing new asynchronous framework for Python 3. So I'm, I'm curious, Kevin kind of alluded to it, but I think I'd want to go there. It's this whole Python 2.723 situation. I mean, I, I don't know. From the outside, it just looked like people were having a real tough time. And I, I'm not sure about the particulars. And I want to share that, but also just want to add it as like a prelude. The Ruby community went through a very similar thing with the 1.8 to 1.9 to 2 transition, um, where the switch to uh, like a new Unicode system and a ton of other stuff just like wreaked havoc all over the community. But it it's like Ruby got over it very, very quickly and, and like a lot of bridges were burned and people just kept on moving. And then like we popped out on, on the other side and survived. And I think a lot of people have forgotten about that. But there's still at least, you know, like from my side, some observations that there's still this Python 2.7 or 3. Point, and then like I said, 3.5. So the 3 series seems to be moving quickly. Like Kind of what's going on then and what's the future looking like around it? So I think the, when Python 3 first came out, there were a lot of kind of breaking changes and not a lot of exciting new features. Um, there were, the breaking changes were mostly to fix what were perceived as mistakes in the way the language had, or parts of the language had taken in the past. And there were, um, at the time, a lot of different Python uh, 2.x Pythons that were in production in the wild, the people at the time were using Python 2.5, 2.6, 2.7, and already kind of maintaining libraries across all three of those. And when Python 3 came out, they're not very much, I think, well, people had, it was a big effort to get Python 3 out. So the core developers had been kind of very focused just on getting the first Python 3 release done. And that meant that how easy it was to maintain code bases across the two of them, uh, across both Python 2.x and 3.x, hadn't been given already any thought by the core development team. Uh, if you add on top of that, that like Python 3.0 was essentially completely unusable, um, and 3.1 was immediately re re or released very shortly afterwards. 3.1 was also a bit of a disaster. I mean, kind of so much of the language had changed in small ways that there were lots of lots of bugs. Python 3.2 was the first kind of Python 3 release that really saw any kind of use outside of people trying things out. Um, and since then, the core development team have really put a lot of effort into making 
Python 3 more Python 2 compatible. Um, and it's been lots of small things. So it's been allowing you to use the U prefix, which was used in Kate Unicode strings in Python 2 in Python 3. And Python 3, there's not really any difference between a string without the U prefix and one which does have it. But it means that you can, if you do need to support Python 2, you can use the U and everything just works. And where things are now is that I think Python is over the last, I'd say, two years, the Python 3 series has seen more major development than I've seen in Python in probably since I've been using Python. They've added major new features like the asynchronous library support, which was kind of spearheaded by Guido and which is now seeing you know, a whole community has grown up just around that asynchronous support and they're writing asynchronous libraries for doing all sorts of things. Um, it's a very interesting space to play in at the moment because there's still a lot of work to be done. So you can really pick a problem and go and help out on the library, which is still support, which is still seeing active development um, and contribute in major ways if you want to. And yeah, there's been just uh, Python 3.0. There was recently a core Python development sprint. I followed the Python core check-in mailing list and they were on the order of kind of 100 commits a day for, or 50 to 100 commits a day for a period of about two weeks um, with some breaks for in weekends and things. Um, but yeah, so the, the core Python development is kind of the, the most active I've seen. And then the other parts of the Python ecosystem seem to be doing pretty well too. So the kind of use of Python in, um, and especially the statistical sciences is seeing, a, oh, the community seems to be growing. Uh, the people who made the um, IPython, which is a Python console for scientific computing, um, they've branched out their core engine um, into a project called Jupyter, uh, which is now being ported by scientific programming from other in other languages too. Um, that's kind of they've brought out a sort of language agnostic core. So that community is growing and very active. Uh, the web development community also producing lots of amazing things. Django sees regular releases. I think when talking about Python 3 development, it's very important to, or especially the porting brokers, to realize that um, because of the way the Python ecosystem works, it's taken a while for, you know, after Python 3 was released, it, um, a couple of years for NumPy and SciPy to be ported to Python 3. And it's only after those were ported that the scientific software stack could start moving. And certainly over the last two years, there's been a, a major upsurge in packages moving to Python 3 because so much more of the basic stuff now supports. Yes, and I think we've also seen within the community, the conversation has shifted from the initial conversation of when should we support Python 3? Uh, now you see a lot of library maintainers asking, how long should we keep supporting Python 2? So I'm curious, as a non-Pythoner, is there no similar or no similar way of solving this in that JavaScript is done where you've got Babel that transpiles ES6 to ES5 uh, that you can get and that you can have your Python 3 code that can still be compiled back into Python 2 code? So there are actually some automated tools for moving from Python 2 to Python 3 or from Python 3 to Python 2. So there's a library called 2 to 3, yeah, 2 to 3, um, which does a pretty good job and for a while was kind of the recommended tool for maintaining libraries that support both Python 2 and Python 3. 
the biggest stumbling block really is that one of the main biggest fixes in Python 3 was to avoid the ambiguity between Unicode strings and byte strings, which exist in Python 2. So in Python 2, the string literals are byte strings by default, and people kind of mixed Unicode and byte strings quite freely. And there, when you're porting to Python 3, there isn't an automated way to make the right call of which whether a string should be bytes or or Unicode. Now, probably usually these are effectively bugs that are lurking in the um, in the Python code. Usually, the intense well, usually someone has, but someone has to make the call as to which it should be, um, and that's very tricky to automate. No, it sounds like everything's much better off actually having gone through the bulk of the saga. Yeah, there are some really nice things which came out of Python 3. There were also some some very tough times during the transition uh, when people encountered hard problems. For example, there was there were very long debates on the development mailing list over exactly how whether reading from a list of files from a directory should return bytes or uh, Unicode strings by people. Um, and that raged on for a long time. And eventually the decision was that you should be allowed to do both and you should get to choose. And if you follow this conversation, you learn a lot about all the various interesting ways directory structures can get into horrible states where one option, the one option will be wrong and the other option will be right. And on different systems, the cases are different and the options are swapped around, which is why the requirement, the only sane thing is to allow both which is actually a rather surprising thing to learn. Yeah, which almost sounds insane. Both of these are true. <laughs> I want to take a moment to tell you about OfferZen. OfferZen connects you with more than 350 South African companies that are hiring developers. Instead of dealing with recruiters or applying to dozens of jobs individually, on OfferZen, companies apply to you. To get started, just sign up on OfferZen.com and build a profile. Once you're ready, your profile is made visible to the companies hiring on OfferZen. Companies interested in you will send you an interview request with details about the job, including upfront salary info. So if you're looking for work or want to hire developers, check them out at OfferZen.com. That's O-F-F-E-R-Z-E-N.com. I'm wondering whether we should move back on to local community stuff. Yeah, I was going yeah. to say, I want to pull it a bit closer to the uh, Alexander Bar. I'm really curious about that that venue, the, the kind of history around it, that, that odd mix of classic equipment and, and modern technology. Please tell us a bit about, about the place. Start off with what is Alexander Bar? Someone who has no idea. So Alexander Bar is a really amazing bar on Strand Street in Cape Town. Uh, one part bar, one part uh, performance venue. Um, it's got a very small theater in it. Uh, it'll take about 50 people. And everything, well, all of the software that runs the bar from the software that provides the telephone exchange Edward has always been a big fan of the musical and he really wanted to own a bar which had phones where you could pick up and speak to someone at another table. And so he bought a bar and well, he, yes, he started a bar and he wrote the telephone software for it. And that's um, all written in Python using and uh, some sound cards and some Arduinos to send the on and off hook signals. Um, so yeah, so Edward and Nicholas, who are the owners of the bar, they started out running a small software consultancy called nitric.co.za, um, and they did a lot of Python development. And Edward was part of the core Python community um, from the early days, and he still actually pays for the Cape Python user group 
server, which runs the, the Python South Africa website and generally, generously allows to use his theater um, on the occasional Saturday afternoon to run the Cape Town Python user group talks. Yeah, and they did recently well for themselves running today and well enough to kind of follow, I guess, their dream. So of starting Alexander Bar. Um, Nicholas is also a playwright in his spare time, hence the theater. A lot of the theater control software is also um, part Python. And yeah, they they founded Alexander Bar. Um, they decided that the point of sale system, all the point of sale systems that they could buy were too expensive. And um, so they wrote their own point of sale system, including the software that prints out um, things via the thermal printer for printing receipts. It's got, as a result, the point of sale system that does have some really nice features, like you can uh, split tabs and get your own own bill um, very easily. And you can, yes, they, uh, they also wrote the ticketing system for buying tickets for the bar. Um, you can pay for stuff in Bitcoin. Largely, they've just been having a lot of fun running their bar and writing the software to do that in Python. Right, if you want to go have a look at the kinds of things that they run, you can go to alexanderbar.theater.today. And Edward's talk about the bar was voted the best talk at the first Python South Africa. How, how to run a bar in Python. That's amazing. Well, how long has this been running for? Neil, connect me if I'm wrong, but I think Alexander Bar opened in early 2012 too, or maybe late 2011. I think it was late 2011. It had been open. It hadn't been quite, I don't think it had been quite open a year when we had the first Python ZA. But I think it was. I think it was late 2011. I know. I've definitely had a, a drink there after the Ruby Fusa, ironically, which used to be like literally on the next block at the Strand Tower Hotel. And you didn't drag me out there. Damn it, Kenny. I'm sure I did. I can't remember who was there. <laughs> but it's it's a fantastic place. I was just. I think at the time the only thing I knew about was that the phone system was done with Python, and that was after I was just looking at that old school vintage phones that they had at the tables. And it's like unbelievable. And then a friend pointed it out. No. This is all written in Python. It was just like it, it kind of stuck with me since. Yes, the the bar really does have a kind of a nice ambiance and a sort of vintage feel. Um, but behind the scenes, there's a lot of high tech Python. Yeah, I'll definitely go there with fresh eyes next time I'm in Cape Town. Yeah, and Edward and Nicholas are really friendly. If you just tell them that you had heard that they, well, if you know what Python is, that you can just speak to them about Python for ages. Will do. I want to ask a bit about some of the other community stuff going on around Python, PyCon, CTPug. Is uh, the Django Girls events, are there any of them happening around here? Um, and, and maybe, give, and if they are, maybe give the listeners a bit of a background what the Django Girls actually are. Cool. So Django Girls, is a um, well, an international community which run well, which runs Django Girls events, which are teaching um, women to code via uh, learning how to build a blog for themselves in Django. Django is a Python web framework, and it was founded um, actually fairly recently. I think less than I think sort of three years ago, and it's just taken off incredibly. I think it was founded by Ola and Ola, who Polish people who decided that they wanted to to kind of copy code. And there are now Django Girls events happening all around the world. There has been one Django Girls event in Cape Town earlier this year. Yep. If you go to Django Girls one word but all, you can see a map of all of the events that happened. Um, and there's a 
1962, which had happened kind of in Africa. So there was one in Cape Town um, earlier this year. In January, there was one in Zimbabwe in Namibia. There have been two in Zimbabwe, one in Hawaii. Um, there have been three in Uganda. There's one taking place in, well, in Kenya and Nairobi. And a whole host of them that have happened in Nigeria. Yeah. Oh, um, some of the people who organized so there will be a Django Girls event happening alongside Icon Today this year. There's still a chance to sign up. You can go to Django Girls and click on the event list and uh, sign up if you would like to learn Python. Probably if you're listening to this podcast, you might know someone who wants to learn Python. Um, yeah, feel free to point it out to them. And yeah, uh, so actually three of the people who run Django Girls in, in Africa will be at PyCon today. Uh, Jessica Upani, who runs PyCon Namibia and who ran the Django Girls there, um, will be uh, hopefully speaking at PyCon South Africa. Uh, Anna Makarudze, who ran Django Girls in Zimbabwe, um, will also be at PyCon South Africa and speaking. And who wrote, who ran Django Girls in Cape Town earlier this year, is running it again at PyCon. South Africa. So, yeah. That's great to hear. Um, I actually went, I was in the same honors class as Cody Ralph. Oh, awesome. Yes. And Django girls um, are always looking for mentors and tutors, and you don't need to know Python extremely well to be uh, a mentor at, at Django girls. If, you, if you're a coder who's used Python before and knows how to install it, you really start kind of right from, right from the beginning. So, being able to Help people get set up and running is kind of more than enough kind of expertise in, to help out. Yeah, definitely. That's always been the thing about that I felt about getting involved in a lot of these coding workshops is that how much knowledge do you need to have of the language? Um, and I've I've just been a bit reluctant because I I don't feel like I'm very experienced. I think one of the one of the truths of software development is that really no one is massively experienced. Often people who are giving amazing conference talks picked up the libraries that they're talking about six months before, or it's an idea that they've been working on for a few months. Certainly when, for example, the people who take on Python user group were doing kind of Python bug days, it was our real first introduction to kind of the core Python code base. We just looked at the issue tracker and said, Hmm. Do we know what? Well, let's have a look at this. It sounds interesting. Occasionally, went uh, we went. Let's have a look at it. It sounds interesting. And after now, I said, no, this is really, really hard. Let's look at something else. Yeah, there, there were definitely some uphill battles. Um, one of the bugs that we filed a patch for, I think the patch eventually landed after three years. <laughs> yeah, it was one of those patches which no one really. I mean, I think this is true of a lot of communities. The person who had originally written that part of the of the Python standard library had wandered off, and the code, the change was obscure enough and tricky enough that no one really felt comfortable kind of landing it with just a five minute glance. And so it took three years for someone to come along who had commit access to, um, who felt that they had the time and the headspace um, and the knowledge to to land it. And yeah, it wasn't that any of the people involved were, were kind of experts, it's just that kind of we had some time and so three of us stayed at it for a long time. Oh the other the other truth is that I think this is true for any language. If you go and look at the internals of a language that you love, you will feel sad. 
Um, <laughs> the, for example, there are, there are many parts of the Python standard library which don't in any way conform to PEP8 Python standard. <laughs> um, there are C files where the indentation is completely mixed from line to line. So sometimes it's tab, sometimes it's four spaces, sometimes it's two spaces, sometimes it's one tab and three spaces. <laughs> um, Just chaos. Um, there is another thing to be said is that experts sometimes make poor teachers. So if if you've struggled with something um, and are continuing to struggle with it, you may be thinking more along the lines of the people that you're going to be teaching. Uh, and it's it's a it's it's a, it's a powerful teaching tool, just you know, fighting it with it and, and understanding it from simple uh, a simple perspective yourself. Alex Gaynor, who gave the opening keynote at the very first PyCon South Africa, gave a, a really interesting keynote on scaling software development. But he wasn't speaking about scaling to hundreds of servers. He was talking about scaling a software team to kind of tens of people. And one of the very interesting things that he said there was that when a new person arrives on your team, especially a kind of more junior person, you should watch what they encounter, well, kind of watch what they do very carefully because they're going to encounter all of the same pain points that anyone, anyone else encountering your library would encounter. And often those are real kind of bugs and suboptimal things that the people who've been using your software for kind of two years have all forgotten about. They just type the crazy magic command that you have to type at the start, and they don't even really notice that they're doing it. Um, they've just forgotten that it's crazy. They, they've become conditioned to the stupid. Yes, they have become <laughs> Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. There's, Chantal, there's an interesting thing. I'll add a link for the show notes. It's a Dreyfus model of skills acquisitions. Yes. And and that basically says, well, this guy, to sum it up, uh, shortly, there's five levels of, of gaining knowledge and expertise in anything. So you'll start off as a novice, then you'll move to an advanced beginner, then you'll become more competent, then you become proficient, and then you become an expert. And, and part of what Dreyfus said is the best teacher for a student is somebody who's just on the next level. So everything is still fresh. They kind of remember what things go like. So so to teach the novice, you, novice, you want an advanced beginner, or the novice should seek out an advanced beginner. Um, and also that means an advanced beginner can actually go and help somebody because whatever the novice is bumping heads with, the advanced beginner just solved it like very recently and can share that knowledge and experience. And there's empathy and everything that goes with it where an expert goes, yeah, you know what, like Unicode string, this string, who cares, like get the stuff done. We're all over this. And we've been over it for a while. So that's where you kind of get that disconnect. It's some adversity. Some professors are just almost too smart. And you have it at school as well. Like some teachers are just too smart. They can't communicate with their students anymore. Exactly. Yeah, and that's that Dreyfus model is really interesting. And, and that might be you figure out what the place is if you want to volunteer. And for anybody wanting to volunteer at a um, at a Django Girls or any one of these other kind of bridge workshops for the, for the different languages, that's a great way to, to gauge yourself. So so on, on, a, on a similar note, um, and talking about university, uh, one of the other um, side events is Software Carpentry, which is all about teaching researchers in science and in engineering, medicine, um, and all those uh, sort of related disciplines about uh, like software development and how to like do things a bit more more simply and easily. Um, we, we're having that workshop 
happening at PyCon ZA2. And and what does that workshop actually look like, like nuts and bolts wise? So I'm actually going to talk the method of Adriano, which is, is running software carpentry at PyCon ZA. No. Hi. But we were just speaking about uh, Oscar, um, I think it was Kenneth was asking what, what actually happens at software carpentry. Um, so Software Carpentry, um, it's an international organization that has a bunch of open learning materials that they teach. Um, they have a network of instructors, which they try to expand after each workshop, and they try to encourage attendees to become instructors themselves, because part of their philosophy is that it's better for researchers to teach other researchers, um, because they kind of know where they're coming from, and they, they know what's, like, what to focus on. Um, and they... They have materials that cover um, the shell, command line programming, um, basic version control, and they also use, have materials for programming languages that researchers particularly um, find useful. So there's R material and Python material, and obviously at PyCon today we're going to be looking at Python as well as the shell and the Git. And at a, at a typical tutorial, instructors work through the material. They um, they do kind of live coding to show the, the attendees how stuff works and works through stuff with them. Um, and attendees can give feedback using uh, red and green sticky notes to kind of give an indication of whether they're following or not. I think one of the important wow. things about software carpentry is that the attendees are encouraged to do all of the work on their own laptops so that when they go back to their kind of lab or um, their research area, they're, um, they're already familiar with working with things with their own tools. Yeah. Yeah. No, that sounds amazing, especially um, encouraging them to carry on teaching afterwards. It's a great way to cement their learnings. Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, it builds up quite a nice community. Um, <clears throat> it started up in South Africa about a, a year, maybe two years ago. Um, and there have been a couple of workshops in South Africa and the local community is, is growing. And we're trying to encourage more people to um, move on to um, give their own workshop. Yes, the... Software Carpentry in South Africa has been kind of spearheaded by Anelda. Yeah, Anelda van der Waals. And yeah, she got into Python via, or and Software Carpentry via bioinformatics. Um, there was a very kind of strong Python and bioinformatics group at the University of Seoul with Kate. And um, yeah, they, they taught a lot of Python to bioinformaticians. And so they actually are, have. There's kind of interestingly scattered groups of Python people doing their own kind of thing with Python, I guess, all over South Africa for a long time. There were um, a, a strong NumPy and SciPy group at the University of Stellenbosch, which um, has near the newest. Also in Stellenbosch, there were a whole group of core clone developers. Clone is, like, I guess, a kind of opinionated web framework for, for Python. And they've had prints and take down occasionally throughout the years. Yeah, and that community predates, clone community predates the Cape Town Python user group. Oh, there are also other Python user groups. Um, there's a Kauteng Python user group, which meets very regularly. Um, they have a meetup group. And recently a Durban one, too, I believe. Yes, a Durban Python user group have started up. I'm not exactly sure how well they're doing, um, but if you're in Durban, come up. Oh, and I'm curious, do you guys know is Python being taught in schools? I believe that Python is being taught to computer science students at the University of Cape Town. Uh, yes, that's right. For um, first-year students. 
So that was where um, I was first exposed to Python because in high school, um, I mentioned this on one of the previous episodes of ZA Dev Chat, I was doing Delphi. Yeah, from uh, I remember being at high school, I was doing Delphi at high school, but getting involved in the South African Computer Olympiad, um, Python was very heavily punted there as being a, the preferred language to tackle the problems with. Yes, that was the Shuttleworth Foundation was yes. funding the Computer Olympiad for a while, and um, Mark Shuttleworth company ThoughtWorks was very much a Python shop, and Mark himself, I think, quite a big fan of Python. So he was kind of pushing it quite heavily for the Olympiad. It was very clear, Drive, that uh, the preference was Python. And there were even, I think, if I recall, special prizes or special problems that were, uh, uh, yeah, special prizes for Python entries that you could only get that way. Bruce Merry, who recently won Google's uh, distributed code jam, is giving a talk at Python Today this year. Um, and he uses Python quite a lot, um, often alongside GPU accelerated code and um, other things. Sorry, that was maybe a bit left field, but I thought I would leave on it while we were talking about coding mm. challenges. On Python in schools, I know there are uh, sort of Hyperion development amongst others. There are people who are have been for some years and are still in the process of trying to convince the South African government to uh, make Python an official language in schools, but these sort of things are very time-consuming to get through government because there's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot involved, and um, it's a big change to the curriculum and all the rest of it. So people are trying to get it to happen. Whether it will or will not happen, who knows? It's also just practically quite an I mean, involved task. Can you imagine having to kind of train and kind of reach computer science teachers um, across the country is not a, a trivial task. Yeah, when we had us from Hyperion on the show a few months ago, you kind of alluded to that. And that's kind of why I was asking. I, I, I just forgot whether they've made headway or if it was kind of going, because I think it was this Java versus Python battle for the school kids, basically. Yeah, so my understanding at the moment, and that Ria's probably had kind of first-hand information, is that they're trying to set up a, I guess, a community of practice for South African computer science teachers. So... Yes. ways for computer science teachers to kind of Im improve their own knowledge and um, and their teaching and to um, spread better computer science education to school children that way. Yeah, that was fantastic when they, they talked about that. I love that idea of building the community of practice. Yeah, and I think it's it's very very necessary. A lot of well, a lot of school teachers in South Africa face very big challenges and the more help and assistance we can give them in their kind of vital task, the better education will be. I want to pull us a bit back to the conference. And I want to give you guys the opportunity to share with us some of the most exciting things that's happened at the past PyCons. I mean, we've heard of world-class speakers at the first one and, and, and workshops around it and all kinds of fascinating stuff. So kind of if there's something we missed in the from the first few years and then kind of maybe tease what's going to come this year that's going to make it really special. I kind of think back to the past, past moments from PyCon South Africa. So I think one, one moment that I think still sticks in my mind was that the second PyCon South Africa in 2013, uh, we ran our first panel discussion, and it was it was really lively in a in a, a fun way. There was a I, I remember particularly a discussion between one of the panelists and a lecturer from UCT in the audience 
around whether students should be made to learn unit testing. And the, the lecturer had said that sometimes the students resist learning unit testing. And I remember the panelist said, well, I've got children. I just tell them what to do. Um, it was, <laughs> the, the panel was quite a, quite a lot of fun. And panels have definitely been, for me, the, the panels have definitely been one of the highlights. I'm not sure how people are familiar with the idea, but Pythons for a long time have traditionally had lightning talks, which are very short talks. You submit just a title for your talk kind of during the conference to a list which the organizers keep track of. And then everyone kind of stands up and you can, or you're encouraged to make a few slides, but you only get it for five minutes. For five minutes. So three or four slides is usually enough. And you stand up and you speak about whatever is kind of your burning, usually it's like a burning issue something you've noticed at the conference or a response to a speaker or a pet project you're excited for, an upcoming conference you're excited about. Interesting way of solving problems, tools you've found. Yes, and there's always a lot of fun. The, the other great thing about lighting talks is that if you mess it up, it's only five minutes and you're off stage. <laughs> you're not stuck there for the full half an hour. So anyone who, yeah, if you are coming to PyCon South Africa or a PyCon at any point, I, strongly encourage submitting a lightning talk. Um, it's a great way to get to try out speaking. Um, and if you like it, you can always do more. And if you don't like it, you don't have to do it again. You've, you've done your time. Just kind of random story from past PyCon. I love that my time at the first PyCon Africa was spent at things around the website because we were just kind of building it on the fly in amongst all of the rest of the conference organizing. And in the second year, I decided that I would go and look for some proper conference software to run the conference with. Well, um, in the first year, we did initially try and start off with Symposium, which is used for the main US PyCon, and ran into large problems very quickly, well, and then opted into other things. Yes, the biggest problem with Symposium is that it's largely a vague skeleton of conference software, which PyCon US heavily customizes into an actual conference software. Uh, and they, they're much larger than us, and their needs are completely different. But So we ended up, of course, in true developer fashion, rolling our own. And we wrote Waffer, which is now the Icon South Africa conference software. And uh, we've been using it for a few years now. And it was also used by this year's DevCon, held in Cape Town. So it's now being used by two conferences. Yeah, it even has an API. Nice. It's way for open source. Yes. Um, it's available on, the source is available on GitHub under the TDPug organization, the TDPug slash graphic. I'll let a note. Uh, every year, Python today has uh, sprints uh, on the weekend after the conference. It's just people from the conference getting together to uh, write code, work on their pet projects, learn things from each other, um, ask people questions. It's quite a nice place to speak to international speakers because they're often hanging around, except if they go to do touristy things like look at penguins. I remember the first bike on the day sprints because my car blew its radiator on the second, second day of the, of the sprints and that made getting around, but luckily it was after the conference. The sprints are also the time when the organizers get to relax, kind of all, most of the stress of the conference is gone and you've gone from having to worry about 200 people to worrying about 20 to 30 people. Now 300 people. Yes. I'm actually curious. You, um, you guys have this notion that the, or not notion, I mean, it's implemented, that tickets bought by companies are more expensive than if the tickets bought by individuals. People just swallow the pill and carry on. 
So that came from, I think, from PyCon US, um, if I remember it's, correctly. It's traditional across all the PyCons, actually. It's just yeah. how the Python community works. And yeah. we no. followed suit, and no one's ever really complained. Yes, I'm, I was quite thought that a lot of people would go, hmm, why should I pay more? I'll just buy a an individual ticket. But, I mean, over the years, they've been really kind of real. All people have asked. Should I buy a corporate ticket from individual ticket? And usually we've helped them kind of make the correct decision. Often the people asking actually should buy individual tickets. And companies seem really happy. I think part of that is that the conference rates are fairly reasonable. So they're not the corporate tickets are not out of um, line with kind of other conference uh, costs. And then the individual tickets and especially the student tickets are largely just discounted tickets. Because we want more people to come and attend and learn. One of the other um, interesting things about tickets for Python South Africa, which is perhaps a bit unusual, is that everyone pays for their ticket one, one way or, or the other. There aren't any, you can get financial aid, in which case you're kind of given a free ticket, but that kind of counts as financial aid. And speakers, organizers, everyone who's attending kind of buys a ticket, whether it's bought for you by your company or whether you buy it yourself. Um, even um, me, David, Neil, or all buying tickets this year. Yep. Yeah, that's also kind of, in a way, feels really nice. I think it helps to, I guess, blur the kind of boundary between organizers and attendees. Um, organizers are not particularly special. It also is an incentive for, it avoids people trying to get on the organizing committee because they want a free ticket or um, trying to get, or submitting a talk just for the free ticket. Um, you, it acts as a filtering method. You, you submit a talk, but you really want to talk about something. Yeah, I think one one of the other um, things which was true in the early years of PyCon today, which but which is slowly becoming not true, is that the first sort of, especially the first three, well, actually the first four years of the conference, we didn't actually turn away any talks that were about Python. We turned away a couple of talks which were completely off topic, but we haven't actually had to do any talk selection until now. But this year, we're actually kind of mostly filled this, the schedule. Of course, some speak, there's always, well, often people who will drop out in the run up to the conference just because uh, life happens, uh, family emergencies, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I think one of the one of the interesting things going uh, in kind of the years to come will be that I can today will have to develop a talk selection process. That's a nice problem to have as a growing conference. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that we have been trying to do is rather, um, especially in the early years when we didn't have a, a lot of necessarily have a lot of talks being offered is rather than to turn a talk away is to try and work with speakers to uh, improve their talk. So for the last three years and um, now we've had kind of a mentorship program offered for talk submission page. So if you have something that you'd like to talk about but you don't quite feel confident and you have questions, you can submit your talk anyway and ask the organizing well let the organizing committee know what kind of help you would like. And the organizing committee will find someone from within the community to, to help you. So uh, it could be anything from just you want kind of technique to you want to know a bit more about uh, what kinds of talks were su successful or what, um, what level to put your talk at. I think is a very common question. I think people also overestimate what, how advanced it be to be in interesting. Often the kind of simpler, kind of less advanced talks are actually more useful because in many, many people in their day-to-day -day lives are doing 
simple Django web development. They're not necessarily building rockets um, or doing kind of complicated coding. And a simple, straightforward talk about how to do web development well often is appreciated by attendees. It sounds very exciting. Thank you, everyone, so much. We've, we, we're actually, I think, well over time. I'm completely blown away. I didn't realize uh, the, the breadth of all the community stuff that, that's happening around um, PyCon and the different user groups and even our neighboring countries. This is just, yeah, wow. Thanks for sharing. Pleasure. Thanks for having us on the, the chat. And thank you, everyone, for coming in. Oh, no, pleasure. Is any, before we hit the picks, is there anything really important that we missed that we didn't ask or that you just forgot to, to bring up? That we should cover this year's dates. Uh, this year, PyCon ZA will be running from the uh, officially from the sixth to the seventh of October. There, we will have software carpentry starting on the fifth. There's still uh, one can still get involved with that, and then we will be starting. I think it's eight in the morning. Um, registration starts at half past eight in the morning. The actual conference will start at about nine. And the venue is the River Club in Observatory. And the sprint will be on the Saturday and Sunday after that, the 8th and 9th. And they will be happening across the road from the River Club at Oracle's offices. Yep. And the weekend before the conference, on the, the 1st, 1st of October, October, there will be a Cape Town Python user group meeting also at Oracle. Um, out the sprint venue, <laughs> and one of the Python today speakers will be doing a sneak preview of their talk on MicroPython, which is a slimmed down version of Python for microcontrollers. And MicroPython recently became quite famous because uh, in the UK it was distributed um, on the Microbits, which is a tiny processor with GPIO points that the UK government decided to give to every child in the UK. Cool. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, I think let's give people's ears a rest. Uh, so a lot of stuff to digest. Uh, to kick us off, Kevin, do you want to get the picks playing? Uh, okay. So a couple of things I want to uh, bring up this week. So first is 144 hertz monitors. If you have just a typical LCD monitor, you probably have a 60 hertz monitor. If you want to play uh, games that require kind of Twitch responses like Counter-Strike, which I've been playing in the last little while, invest in a good monitor that can actually draw good frame rates. That, that that's, makes such a difference to the overall experience. And kind of related to that is, um, I mentioned a few weeks ago that I've been using Ubuntu as my primary desktop, and I'm still using Ubuntu as my primary desktop. And so far, I haven't have, had a single hitch with, with any driver compatibility or um, the polish on... Ubuntu at the moment as a, as a desktop operating system is really good. So I'm re-picking my pick from a few weeks ago. It's still going strong. Nice. Chantal, do you have any picks? Um, yes, my pick this week is an electronic musician called Tycho. They do mostly atmospheric, chilled electronic music. Um, there's no lyrics, so it's quite nice to code to, and it's really relaxing. Um, I'll go quickly in between. I've got a, a movie pick, The 100 Foot Journey. Got a nice little rom-com we watched a few weeks ago. Just light-hearted, fantastically well done. 
And then, a bit of a, another entertainment one, also music pick, um, but not <laughs> calm, electronic, ambient stuff. I've been listening to a lot of Afrikaans rock uh, again the last two weeks. I, I don't know why, I'm just coding like a beast to it, uh, particularly Polisikar and some older albums, Rockoff and, and MCAS, Word Versus. And it's just like, I don't know, it's been pleasant, it's been fun, and it's luckily supporting local bands. So that's kind of kind of my two picks. Uh, Simon, do you have any picks first? So I have two. So my first pick are that I've been reading about recently called C, which stands for Context-Free Replicated Data Type, and they're used for keeping your state sane in um, distributed systems and um, achieving eventual consistency. So if you're excited about distributed systems um, and are interested in kind of what sort of things people are looking at, yeah, go and read about CRDTs. And the second one recently, I've introduced a bunch of Ruby developers to Python's documentation tool of choice, uh, which is called Sphinx. And the hosted site, which you can load your Sphinx documentation to if you're writing, called Read the Docs. So that's uh, Sphinx, not to be confused with text-to-speech uh, engine. This is uh, Sphinx, the documentation engine. It converts restructured text into HTML pages or EPUBs or PDFs and read the docs, which is the site for hosting for Yeah, thanks. I said read the docs really is beautiful documentation that is published up there. Neil? I was going to pick Sphinx, but Simon has beat me to it. So. <laughs> I'll add a plus, plus one for it. David? Something lighthearted. I'm going to recommend Radio. It's Radio with a whole bunch of O's after it. It's uh, music from around the world. So you can listen to music that is fast or slow or weird from 1970s Tunisia. Um, and there's a, like, a whole world of culture out there. You can go and explore it. That sounds awesome. Thanks. Are they region restricted or anybody can listen to it? I haven't seen any region restricted now. Um, you may be concerned about how weird it gets, but that's up to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's perfect. <laughs> Cool. Um, thanks again, gentlemen. Good luck for the conference. I mean, it's a few short weeks away. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it will be a raging success. I mean, just kind of hearing what you guys are doing, uh, the community you're part of, the, um, I'm sure you've got a lot of support from everywhere. Uh, I can't see like anything derailing it. And, and yeah, just have a lot of fun. We've, we've got a fantastic group of people on the committee. Uh, we have lots of experience from... Uh, Simon and Neil and um, we have some fantastic sponsors it's going to be great cool so I think with that let's everybody say goodnight cheers cheers everybody bye cheers goodnight show notes for this episode can be found on zadevchat.io as always ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated if you have feedback on this episode or any other episode you can tweet us at zadevchat or leave a comment on the website thanks for listening to the zadevchat podcast and we'll see you next time